Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I want to start by thanking Helen McKay for keeping my seat warm for a couple of episodes this season. But I am back and back with a vengeance and I am joined today by my co-host Astrid Edwards. Astrid, it's good to see your face again. I am so excited that you are back, Jam. Welcome. Appropriately, I am back on the episode themed darkness. And right now I feel like we're all living through a very dark time, but I want to try and lighten things up. Astrid, when you're living through a period of darkness, do you dive into books that feed that darkness or do you try and run away from it? That is a good question. And to be honest, my answer is different on any day that you would ask me that question. Sometimes, yes, sometimes I find myself picking up something completely unrelated to reality, unrelated to what may or may not be happening in the world around me. Other days I'm like, the only way I can cope is to know more about it and I'm gonna dive in. So I have both responses. And I like to tell myself that's healthy, but I'm not really sure. What about you? I like my books to match my mood. So for me, when periods are dark, like right now, I actually do like to sit in the spooky, dark, sad awfulness in my books. Interestingly, I don't like doing that with my television. I like my television watching to be the escapism, whereas I like books to reflect my reality. It probably is spelling out my distaste for fantasy. I like my books to reflect where I'm at. Look, we're going to keep talking about your uh, distaste for fantasy because Coming soon to a TV streaming service near everybody listening is Amazon's The Wheel of Time. Now, that is an old fantasy series that is kind of like Game of Thrones, written by a different old white guy who now happens to be dead. But the TV adaptation is, all signs are that it's extraordinary. It's done very well. And the casting, I think, is right up your alley, Jamila. All of the main characters whose race was never actually defined because the default is white so often in literature, including in fantasy, have been redefined. And it is a multiracial cast. And I think that you are going to want to play that. I don't mind fantasy and television. See, it matches what I've just said. I like my books to reflect how I'm feeling and where I'm at in the world and my film and my television I'm happy to go anywhere you'd like me to go. I'm happy to go into a completely different mood or space or genre. I don't mind a little bit of fantasy on TV. So I'm actually looking forward to that one as long as you don't actually make me read it. But we've got two very different reads today. We've got a fiction and a non-fiction. I'm bringing the non-fiction to the table. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But I have to say this was one of the hardest reads for me of this year so far the depths of psychological darkness that the, for want of a better word, protagonist speaks to was compelling, but also really painful. I had to sort of shake myself off when I came back into the house from sitting in bed reading. I have had the opposite reaction to the book I'm bringing. It's a work of fiction. It's technically crime fiction. I don't normally pick up crime, but this is, it surprised me, Jam. So much more than crime fiction. This is a book that looks at trauma and the effects of trauma decades after 
it occurs and, you know, how we carry it with us and how it influences our behavior and how we can actually go back and face it. It was unexpected. I thought it was going to be some kind of crime thriller romp, you know, whatever. And instead I found myself thinking about women in their early thirties who face their fears and overcome. It was, it felt pretty good. Sounds like it's about time we got into it. coming back to the podcast today, I am so thrilled to be bringing Escape from Manus, the untold true story. This is by Jaivet Elom, who is an extraordinary man. To give you some background, in 2013, Jaivet Elom fled Myanmar's brutal regime. After a short stint in Jakarta, he boarded a boat of asylum seekers bound for Australia, as so many before him have done. Instead of receiving refuge, though, he was transported to immigration detention. Specifically, Jovet was sent to Manus Regional Processing Centre, which is, of course, the detention centre that has since been deemed as inappropriate and illegal by the Papua New Guinean Supreme Court and forcibly shut down. I don't know where to start, Jamila. Australia's approach to our physical borders by anybody who approaches our physical borders by boat, I find deeply offensive. I find it distressing that our country has these policies and that people agree with them. When I think about what I've been doing in the last eight years, I can't quite comprehend the experience of this man. To flee, to be basically rejected, and then to escape, actually. So let me tell you a little bit more about the book. And folks, It will be impossible for me not to include spoilers in this conversation. So I'm going to warn our audience of that if you do want to flick past because this is a book you want to read fresh and new. But it doesn't matter because this isn't fiction. This is nonfiction. It is all right to know how this man's story ends and it ends happily. In fact, it's on the blurb of the book. So I think I'm comfortable sharing it, but there's that long warning if people do want to turn off. So in 2013, Javiet... Elom sat squeezed into a boat. He left Myanmar for Jakarta. He prayed, not for the first time, for an easy death on that trip. There were so many radical, confronting, terrifying moments on that trip from Indonesia. There was a point where the vessel was sinking. Elom couldn't swim at that point in time. There were fishermen from a nearby island that came to the rescue, hauling each passenger out of the vessel. He was saved. Others were not, including a small baby. And in the book, Elam talks about the screams of that baby's mother and how traumatising it was to him and how that has stayed with him. One of the things I found interesting while reading was that while Javier was at sea, the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, this was Kevin Rudd second time around, declared that any asylum seeker arriving by boat without a visa would never be settled in Australia. Now, we don't have retrospective laws generally in Australia. There's sort of a strong view about not implementing law retrospectively. For example, with the JobKeeper legislation right now, a lot of people are calling on the government to claw back some of the money that was paid to very profitable companies. And the government's, I would say, excuse is that we don't want to put a law in place retrospectively. That wouldn't be fair. Well, Elam had already boarded the boat to Australia 
when the law changed. So, okay, he hadn't arrived in Australia, therefore the law wasn't retrospective to him. But he was in a tiny fishing boat in the middle of the sea. He didn't have the option of going back. And that that was something that really stayed with me the whole read. So he ends up on Minas Island and Minas Island has a deservedly terrible reputation in Australia. The UN has declared it not okay. How long was he there and what was it like for him? Elon was 21 when he arrived at Manus. And one of the things he says in the book was that he was still wearing braces when he arrived and those braces on his teeth went unadjusted for years and years because he was never given access to a dentist. And so his mouth was constantly bleeding. And for me, that just gives you a snatch of insight into what Manus Island was like. Australia's detention centres vary. The conditions in those detention centres vary. If you set aside whether or not you believe detention is appropriate or inappropriate, indefinitely or not, if you set aside those concerns, the actual centres are not homogenous. These are very different centres. There are detention centres in Australia and the northern parts of Australia whose education programs have been praised for being some of the best in the country for people who haven't previously spoken English. So the conditions vary and the conditions in Manus Island were disgusting. Elon lived in a shipping container that had been modified, but it hadn't been modified to the extent that he was living in a metal box in a very, very hot country. He describes food that had debris and stones and hold your stomach human teeth in it. He describes locals attacking the compound because they thought the people living there were terrorists. He says that the physical discomfort was enormous, but the emotional strain was worse. And he talked about this. He talked about how in his home country in Burma, he's from Myanmar, he talks about how the torture there was physical, but the torture on Manus was more psychological, partly because for that group of people who were on boats when the announcement was made by the Rudd government, they didn't really have clear rules or laws around what would happen to them. They just had clear laws about what couldn't happen to them, which was resettlement in Australia. And so he was facing indefinite detention with no end in sight. I can hear the emotion in your voice and listening to you has physically changed my... I feel very different now than I did a few minutes ago and I suspect our listeners will too. When someone picks up a book, they are picking it up to experience something they haven't themselves experienced. I guess my question to you is, why would you like people to pick up this book? Because clearly it's not fun, but it is an act of witnessing, I suppose. Well, the theme was darkness, so I followed the assignment. (laughs) It is dark, but I think there's two reasons to read this particular work. The first is that I believe things done in Australia's name, Australian citizens have a responsibility to know about and to take responsibility for and to speak up where they can. The second reason is what you might not expect. This has a really happy ending and I feel very crude saying this, but a somewhat thrilling ending because Elon escapes, like literally escapes. Like he talks in the book about how he loved watching the hit show Prison Break, which I also loved watching, except he watched it as a teenager in Myanmar, never knowing that one day he would 
literally use the skills he watched on TV. And he said the show taught him skills that helped him get off the island. He got the money for a plane ticket by taking his rationed cigarettes and exchanging them with locals for currency. He studied the timing and the movements of staff members who were coming in and out of the island. He worked out the safest time to escape as a result. Later, a refugee advocate in Toronto who became friends with him said that he had precisely the personality traits that allowed him to get off the island because he was really intelligent at assessing systems, how systems work, and being able to decode them and figure out where the holes were, where the opportunities were. Honestly, it did feel a bit like reading Prison Break on the page when I was reading it, except you knew it was real and you knew the torture this man had been through. And Javier Elam is now in Toronto. He's in Canada. After going through Port Moresby to the Solomon Islands, eventually being able to make it there. He's studying political science and economics at the University of Toronto and his future looks bright. I suspect he is one of the rare lucky ones, but Javier Elam's future is going to be a fruitful, happy life. He is the only person to escape Manus Island. That's correct, yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure most people aren't mounting prison breaks. I'm sure they're not mounting prison breaks. I haven't read this work, Jem, and I am going to get myself a copy and read it as soon as I can. So you have read No Friend But The Mountains. And earlier, Jem, you said that as Australian citizens, you believe that we have a responsibility, maybe a duty to know what happens in our name. Obviously, both of these men were held on Minas Island, but they are witnessing what we as Australians are doing, what our system is doing to people, from their point of view, that external point of view, what do we look like as a country? Before I answer that, I think it's important to note that Manus Island is now closed, that that is not something Australia continues to do, although Australia continues to have a regime of mandatory detention. We look like monsters. We look like monsters. And what I would say to people listening is that I know there are many Australians who don't believe in mandatory detention as a border protection policy, and I know that there are more who do. And I'm not going to argue with you on mandatory border protection policy right now, but if you believe that people should be held in detention if they arrive in an unauthorised way, surely you also believe that that period of detention should be limited should be a maximum period of time so people don't spend their lives wondering when it's going to end. And surely this period of lockdown during COVID gives you a sense of what it's like, a tiny slither of a sense of what it's like to not know when life will be normal and not know what your future holds and to be stuck in the same place in the not knowing. Surely you think it should be limited and surely you think it should be humane living conditions with nourishing food, places to exercise, good education for children and support for people to thrive in that space rather than feel like they're in jail. Remembering, of course, that the majority of people who arrive in Australia by boat do prove to be refugees and therefore committed no illegal act. All right, Jem, we're going to move to fiction now and I would like to introduce I Shot the Devil by Ruth McIver. Now, I don't normally pick up crime. And I picked up crime. I I picked up this work of fiction because the brief was darkness and I decided this will be what Jam is looking for. 
I didn't have low expectations, but I know I'm not very good with crime. So I went in with, you know, I assumed there'd be a crime in the past and I assumed there'd be some kind of hard bitten journalist or detective who was going to solve it with a bit of their own backstory thrown in. And that was kind of what I thought I was going to get. I got so much more and I genuinely recommend this work by Ruth McIver. So I'm going to stay away from spoilers, but I am going to give you kind of just the intro of the setting, right? Because that means that we can talk about it. The main character is in her early 30s. She is a writer and she's a crime writer. She travels around America and she writes highly popular stories about really bad things that have happened. We find out really early that when she was 16, she was living in a town where there was a really violent satanic murder by a group of teenagers. It becomes pretty evident that she knew these teenagers. She was not involved in the crime, but she knew the teenagers and she had had such a bad experience with some of those teenagers that she'd been taken out of the school and she was heavily medicated and in therapy when all of this went down. So 16 years later, she is still recovering from what happened to her. And I guess what I found was the strength of this book was this is a woman in her early 30s who had extreme trauma, which is uncovered as we go. And it's not really the kind of trauma that you're probably anticipating. And it's how that trauma stays with her and has influenced what she's chosen to do in life, has influenced the types of relationships and friendships she's able to have and not able to have, the way she's able to engage in society and not engage in society. She basically has PTSD and it might be with her for a long time and we're exploring her coping mechanisms, the good ones and the bad ones, right? Like she's a flawed character and I found that unexpected. I found it done with grace and dignity and a, a lot of empathy. And of course, all of that is happening. She is our main character, but all of that is happening as we're getting all the traditional elements of a crime fiction, which is a whodunit, what happened, how will this be resolved? So if you like crime, this is a great book, but I also don't want people who normally avoid crime to think this is not for them. I genuinely found myself emotionally engaged in the story of Erin, our protagonist. All right, Astrid, I am already hooked. What was the crime? Can you tell me that without ruining it? I can. I can tell you the crime without ruining it. Obviously, more detail unfolds as we go through the story. But essentially, there were five teenagers, 17, 18 year olds, who did what some teenagers do in some parts of the world. They kind of went into the nearby forest. They got drunk. They did a lot of drugs. And then what normally doesn't happen occurred. There was a violent crime. And one of the teenagers killed another one in a really violent kind of crime. And then everybody else was an uncertain witness. They couldn't explain what had happened. They blamed the devil and satanic ritual and the power of the emotional hold, almost like a cult leader that the eldest one had over the others. And then of course, you know, the police got there and shot the perpetrator of the crime and the whole town moves on and it's all a bit disturbing. And as you go further through the novel, you realise that this group of teenagers who were involved in a violent crime with all of the consequences that must come with that were actually also used by a variety of people that I won't go into now because that really is a spoiler. And so it's really looking at the power dynamics between adults and younger people. It's looking at 
the power structures of the police and those kind of traditional systems of authority, but also just the way adults can really impose something on children and teenagers and people who are almost adults. And we don't, as a society, really have any way of dealing with that. So it actually poses quite a lot of existential questions for what I thought was a crime book, but is actually really damn nuanced. When I think about crime, I know there is wonderful crime writing and I've really enjoyed wonderful crime writing in my life, but I often conceive of it as something quite formulaic. There's almost that sense of, yeah, I've read this I've read this before, you know, little details are a bit different and it's kind of delicious and sugary and I'm just going to eat it all up because it'll kind of, it's that romp. I'll be able to go with it and the rest. And usually there's some bigger picture ethical question in there or whatever it might be. But this sounds like it goes further than that. This sounds like the author's bringing together two quite different narrative tools, that kind of crime writing readability with genuinely trying to make people think about broader issues. How is that done? How is that interweave? Does it feel natural? Now, this is Ruth McIver's debut work, right? This is her first novel published by a publishing house, but she has been writing for a while and she actually self-published her own verse novel about seven years ago. And this is speculation on my part. I have zero evidence for this to everybody listening, but I think she's just a very good writer who happened to find a story that clearly does fit in the crime genre and in a sense is very much being marketed in that way. But it is more than that because she is not a crime writer. She's a writer. And she has chosen this way of telling this very complicated story. To answer kind of the second part of your question there, she does it with good writing and she does it with characters, particularly the main character, Erin, the protagonist. She has an incredibly rich and deep backstory and current story in her life. So yes, you know, she drinks too much and she kind of self-medicates because she has trauma. You can probably pick that up in any crime novel ever published, right? But it's also deeper than that. We explore why she stayed away from people. And as we find exactly what happened to her and the multiple levels of betrayal that she experienced from many different people in her life, she's a fully rounded character. And, you know, so often in crime, everything's not quite resolved or, you know, the hero, detective, police person, whatever, doesn't quite get over the trauma and there's going to be another book so they can continue on. It doesn't feel like that at all. This feels like a story that was told. And I genuinely think that women readers will really enjoy this crime novel. I really did. You know, the fact that there was a crime and, you know, it kind of got solved at the end was a secondary part of my reading experience. I got a bit of joy from that all wrapping up and understanding what happened. Like that was the reading payoff. I love that. But I'm going to remember Erin. And I don't think I can name another protagonist in my limited reading of crime. Astrid, it is time for the return of recommendations for those of you for whom two books is not enough to go away with. Astrid, you've got a recommendation for us today and it's by one of my favourite I would like to recommend Second Place by Rachel Cusk. Now, this is... Cusk's latest work. It came out this year and it was long listed for the 2021 Booker Prize. I admit that I only came to Rachel Cusk this year. So this is all very new to me. This is a standalone novel and it is the interior life of a woman in her 50s, maybe late 50s, who 
lives in a very remote part of the world. She lives on a kind of a, a, a rural retreat. Uh, they are not wealthy, but they are certainly comfortable. And she invites an artist to come and stay. And he is an older male artist. He's a painter who she has always loved his work, right? She has always felt deeply moved throughout her life by his art. And to summarize, he's a bit of a bastard and eventually comes to stay. And the darkness that he brings with him, this privileged maleness, this successful lone genius artist who's not actually that successful and not actually a genius and had all so much help from everybody else comes and lays across the landscape. It lays across her life. It lays across her relationships with her daughter and her husband. And I don't know, it's just really affecting. It's basically, I read it as a metaphor for the privileged white male who stuffs everything up. You sold me. I'm ready to <laughs> ready to get my hands on it. Astrid, I uh, want to recommend Armani Haydar's The Mother Wound, which I am pretty sure we have talked about on this podcast before. But as you said just a moment ago, we can't talk about it enough. This is, and I don't use this word lightly, this is a magnificent work. Armani Haydar is a name that's probably familiar to a lot of the listeners. Armani's mother was killed in a really brutal act of domestic violence that was perpetrated by her father. At the time of that murder, Armani was five months pregnant. So she was in this incredible space of grief. But at the same time that she was grieving her mother, she was building a perception of the kind of mother she wanted to be. And that inevitably means you reflect on how you were mothered. And I can't quite even wrap my head around now having read her book a couple of times how she was able to hold those two directions in her head at once Amani is also an artist and she is so evocative in this work she writes with a real beauty and simplicity and it sounds like a dark book And I bring it today when we've been talking about darkness for a reason. I'm not sure there's much darker than what happened to Armani, but it's also a story of resilience and strength. It's a story of motherhood. And I think it's going to be an incredible gift to other survivors because Armani is so gently encouraging of survivors to to find their voice and to own their own I have read The Mother Wound. I think Armani's book is beautiful. Yes, dark but I think it is beautiful. I think Armani herself is beautiful and the way she tells her story and shares her story. And of course, the story of her mother and grandmother and sisters and children, because they cannot be separated from what happened to Armani and and her family. I think it's a gift to all of us, actually. That's all we've got time for on Anonymous Was a Woman today. Thank you for being with us. It's such a joy to return to the first episode of the week and be in Astrid's company again. If you would like to make sure you never miss an episode, then don't, my friends. You can subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, if you leave a rating and a review, it will help other people find Anonymous Was a Woman and you can give this gift to book lovers, to more of us. This podcast was produced by Bad Producer Productions. It is a product of Future Women and it is supported by the generous people at Hachette Publishing. We'll see you in a few days. Bye.